Hey, this is Ross Payton with Roleplaying Public Radio. Uh, we're here with uh, Tracy Barnett, uh, the creator of Iron Etta. Uh, Accelerated, actually, the, the new edition of Iron Etta, the, the fate Viking punch giant dwarven mecha in the face uh, roleplaying game. And I know that's a crowded genre, but uh, Tracy has done an excellent job creating uh, uh, a very fun game. We have an actual play of this on the podcast, uh, by the time you listen to this interview, it should be up. Uh, but this is the new edition of it. Uh, so, Tracy, uh, go ahead and say hi to Roleplay Public Radio. Hi to Roleplay Public Radio. <laughs> As if you didn't know that was going to happen. Um, yeah, I'm happy to uh, to be talking to you today. Okay. Um, so, before we get into the game itself, uh, can you give us a little background um, uh, in terms of your work as a game designer? Sure. Uh, so, I started... Uh, doing RPG work about seven or eight years ago. Uh, I was working on a campaign setting that I had very lofty goals for that uh, summarily became a bloated mess and sort of is sitting on the creative shelf until I decide to uh, flens it apart and use the bits that are actually good. (laughs) Uh, But while I was doing that, I had an idea for a game about high schoolers uh, and that game was called school days and it's a high school movie role-playing game. And I kickstarted that in 2012, I believe. So I've now been sort of doing this professionally for six years. Um, I've wow. yeah. yeah done seven kickstarters. I have learned that I don't like doing kickstarters myself. <laughs> and so for this new version of Ironetta, I'm working with encoded designs to uh, handle all of the business side, the heavy lifting. Uh, They've also offered project development and editing and all that good stuff. So it's been a really, really great partnership. Awesome. Um, So uh, before we get into the the, the differences between the old and the new edition, uh, why don't you, can you give us the sort of elevator pitch for Ironata for those uh, of our listeners who are not familiar with it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, So Ragnarok happens in the form of 50-foot-tall metal dwarven destroyers rising out of the ground. And humanity cries out, oh gods, oh gods, what do we do? And Loki says, hey, I have this thing that I totally didn't steal from the dwarves that will let you take the spirits of your bravest warriors and bond them to the bones of dead giants. And y'all can Pacific Rim this shit. In those exact words, I uh, undoubtedly. Uh, well, I mean, you know, you're a god. You can see across time and space to some degree. So sure, Loki, Loki knows about Pacific Rim. He's a huge Idris Elba fan. Uh, yeah, and probably uh, uh, Del Toro fan as well, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, Hellboy 2 is pretty uh, uh, fried up Loki's alley. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. So, um yeah, I the first Iron Edit did pretty well uh, on Kickstarter. Uh, I actually backed it. Uh, it's one of those games that I have on my shelf that I can look over at right now. Uh, but I I hadn't I haven't gotten around to playing it yet because, well, you know, there's there's just <laughs> there's so many games in so little time. Mm-hmm. Um, what and your original version for it was uh, for Fate Core. Yes. Um, and what kind of new mechanics did you add to the old version? Like, what what were you uh, bringing for that? So the the original version uh, used Fate Core with a smattering of Fate Accelerated in the form of approaches. Uh, so when you were operating at giant scale, when you were in you know the bone bonded summoned up the bones, or as the GM, you're bringing the pain with a dwarven destroyer. Big things used approaches rather than skills, and and that sort of signaled size, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with the, the new version, it is 
it's based on fate accelerated, but specifically the fate accelerated that's found in Dresden Files Accelerated. Um, and that took a piece of fate tech from the uh, the fate toolkit called Conditions and essentially made character classes for everything in the Dresdenverse. Mm-hmm. So I did a similar thing in Ironetta. So instead of taking Bone Bonded as an extra, like you would in Fate Core, you take the Destiny Bone Bonded, right? Mm-hmm. That's who you are. You are the Bone Bonded. Uh, you know, slight notes of, of Dungeon World in there. Well, what that allowed me to do was to use things called conditions, which are essentially conditional aspects. You've got a track, they all have boxes, and you get more boxes for some and fewer for others. And when you mark a box of, for example, summon the bones, while the box is marked while you're in that scene, the thing that is true is you have summoned the bones of a dead giant, and now you're operating at giant scale. And uh, DFA introduced some some scale rules that work really well as a substitute for what I was doing before. Mm-hmm. And the the best part of that is because conditions have to be recovered in the game, you have to do something fictionally mm-hmm. to get those boxes back. It allowed me to show what the cost of using this power is, right? Mm-hmm. So to stick with the bone bonded, you have a giant bound to your soul. It lives in your head all the time. And it has something it misses about being alive. You have to decide what that thing is. And then, when you want to get boxes of your big stompy giant power back, you have to indulge in that giant's worldly desire. You do that too much and people get really freaked out, right? Or if you uh, are out of power and you want to reach deep down for one last effort because you have to absolutely smash this dwarven destroyer, you can totally do that. But then you mark a condition called out of control and the giant takes over your body Mm -hmm. and just gets to ride you around for a while. And those same sort of cost-benefit things are present in every, uh, every one of the destinies. Mm-hmm. So you can always see what the consequences for your use, uses of power are. And you can totally go as hard in the paint as you want to. Mm-hmm. But you have to deal with the ramifications of it. And those ramifications in this game are very often societal, right? The bone bonded will be marked as an abomination and no one will want to talk to them the seer will be ostracized because they've manipulated fate too much. Um, the rune scribed, if they use their power too much, they just explode. <laughs> so, uh, but, but it, it gives, um, it gives some teeth to all of that stuff in a way that did not exist in the first game. In the first game, all that stuff was kind of hinted at and implied, mm-hmm. but none of it was ever codified in the rules as to how you would handle that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I found that it, it really, lets people know exactly what these characters are supposed to be about, what they value and what their focus in the, in the world is. And mechanically people have a much clearer idea of what they're able to do and when, um, which is something that was missing from the original as it was much more freeform. Yeah. I mean, that's a common criticism with not just uh, Ironetta, but like with pretty much all fate games to some degree or another, because that whole, invoking and uh compelling aspects um and that sort of narrative control uh the agency that players have is sort of you don't know you you're you're trying to you're blindly feeling around the narrative and trying to figure out where you can push into and where you where the gm is going to say no this is the absolute limit so that's um so that i think that's a really uh interesting idea to give really concrete um, this box is essentially to to fit in player character narratives. Um, 
I mean, f- from the the game that we played, I, I still saw like it's not even though that there there is still a lot of room for player creativity because like you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, the when the bone bonded, um, they had to give in to the 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 giant's vice. Um, that there, it's not like you have to roll on a vice table and just choose that. That's uh, collaboratively come up with. Yeah, yeah, the giant just starts messing with you. Um, and you were playing the bone bound in that game, and you you leaned into that yeah. part. Like, well, and the, well, and the vice was chosen though. Well, that like I came up with a, a, a I think it was, was the process. Uh, uh, I came, I proposed a vice. Uh, in my case, it was uh, pyromania. Uh, mm-hmm. But the but the rest of the table had to agree to it, right? Or like the table could have vetoed it if it wasn't appropriate, or was they could have, yeah, because um, there are potential worldly desires that could be content wise really uh, difficult to navigate cleanly yeah. and comfortably. So I just I, I like there to be a check in. Um, mm-hmm. Pyromania tends to be a really uh, a straightforward one mm-hmm. to go with because hey, you want to light things on fire. It's not like you were trying to angle for ritual murder. Yeah, you know what I mean, like. Well, well, I mean, you can also have the other case of the power gamer who's like, well, my vice is being a hero. I really like doing heroic things and helping the team, whatever, whatever you do. Um, My my, my greatest weakness is that I care too much. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, My greatest flaw is that I work too hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I mean, and I think fate in general sort of discourages by the nature of how the mechanics work. There's not really... There are some choices you can make for like quote unquote optimization purposes. Mm-hmm. Like the seer, for example, has a stunt they can take called the ritual staff, which in effect makes them better at using their seer magic. But it's an optional thing. You don't have to take it. And I've seen, you know, 50 50 on people playing the seer and not taking that stunt or deciding to take it mm-hmm. because a lot of people seem to like the idea of a newly minted seer, right? Like they're new to this power and they don't, uh, they, they potentially okay. want to fail yeah. on casting their magic. Cause with the seer, the magic's going to happen one way or the other. Right. It's just, do you do it cleanly or do you pay a cost for it? Um, so I think that because of the nature of fate, you can kind of avoid that stuff. But yeah, the table can totally be like, yeah, that's not really a great worldly mm-hmm. desire. Like it doesn't, doesn't quite fit the tone and the theme of what this game is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's supposed to be, well, and you know, it's fantasy, but uh, um, one thing, because it's a fake game, the player, the, each table can, can sort of decide what genre, subgenre of fantasy this is going to be because um mm-hmm. Because uh, what I really liked, of course, this is not a new to fate or uh, not a new feature to fate games, is that you uh, the players collaboratively come up with elements of the setting. Uh, with the uh, God, was it a holdfast? Uh, mm-hmm, the holdfast yeah, creation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the 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 tables for the holdfast creation, because like in some in most fate games, actually, you have a defined setting and you go around and you tell parts of each other's stories, right? And you fill in how you know each yeah. other and so on. Like so the forth. Dresden uh, files mm-hmm. create a city thing, like what's going yep. on in this particular... Yeah, and that... And has to be within Dresden. Yeah, really. Exactly. Um, and in Fate Core, that model from the original Dresden was adapted to be, quote-unquote, the way that we do this, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really cool, but it can... That, like, that takes pretty much an entire session to do character and setting creation mm-hmm. that way. Because you have a lot of negotiation of, well, what is the game we all want to play? Mm-hmm. So with Ironetta, I made... 
a whole bunch of questions that you roll randomly on tables that are all categorized, um, blessing of the gods, curse of the gods, you know, political maneuvers, so on mm-hmm. and so forth. And there's a, there's a decent amount of setting information in the book. You've got some geographical stuff. You've got some stuff about the other countries that surround Midgard. You've got some stuff about the, the different um, non-human entities who occupy that space. But the holdfast questions really bring to light what is affecting the space you are in right now. And you may never roll a question that has elves in it, for example. Um, you may never roll questions that, that directly show a dwarven threat. Mm-hmm. Or you could roll five questions and that are all about dwarves attacking. Right? It really just depends. And as the group answers those questions and really brings each player's own individual spin to it, you're making your version of Ironetta at the table. Uh, and, and it really means that the GM gets a bunch of juicy plot hooks to work with. The players have things they've created, and when they make their characters, they can invest those characters in those hooks. Mm-hmm. So I, I found it's a really strong way to get everyone dialed in to the tone that you want to have, to the themes of yeah. the of the game it's obviously good to have that question ahead of time. You know, like, do we want this to be a lighthearted comedic game? Sure. Okay. Well then the resource that's missing that we love so dearly is beats, right? Yay. Mm. Beats. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but it could also be um, all of our firstborn children are gone. Like yeah. resource can be, you know, uh, interpreted in a lot of different ways. So every group can really customize the, the things they want to see in the game just by answering the questions as part of, the regular setup process. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, like I, I remember again, you'll, you'll uh, um, in the places that we recorded, um, one player mentioned uh, Ironwood and then that, mm-hmm. that was a setting element that's not in the written text. And so that became an element to our particular whole fest that there's a such thing as Ironwood. And it's a resource that we can use in place of metal. Um, and then I found that, yeah, that's a really, I mean, yeah, that, that, that I, I like that you can't necessarily do that, say, in something like Dresden Files, where it's like, no, we know how magic works, and we know what's magic and what's not. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so, Yeah, I wanted to give enough, enough setting boundaries to be like, if you read through this, you're going to get what the setting is like. Mm-hmm. But for someone who's brand new to it, like every convention game for the most part that I run, including the, the, the game we ran, yeah, Ironwood totally makes sense within context. Like, mm-hmm. I was like, it was, it was a very brief consideration. I was like, yes. And that is a thing in the world. And we yep. did it and we moved on and we had Ironwood. Yeah. Um, so how has a uh, uh, running game, how long have you been running? Uh, 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 well, I guess I should start with how long is it taking you to write the new version of Ironetta? The new version actually got started in terms of making destinies, which was sort of like the core of, of where I started with mm-hmm. it. Uh, Back in probably right around this time last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because because I, I had pitched the new idea to Encoded at Origins 2017. Mm-hmm. And we signed the contracts and I got to work on it uh, in late July, early August. And I had uh, initial drafts of six destinies that I took with me to Big Bad Con uh, last September. And the games that I ran at Big Bad Con were an absolute disaster. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but like the kind of things that I think I should have expected to happen because I had been running the original Iron Edda in one form or another since 2013. Mm-hmm. 
So I've been playing that game for four years. And when I sat down at the table um, at Big Bad Con, well, one, I had made some of these destinies on the flight out to L.A., which had left at 4.35 in the morning <laughs> Eastern time. So I wrote them in pretty much like this weird fugue state. Mm -hmm. And when I got to the table and was looking at them, I was like, well, I don't remember writing this. So <laughs> um, that and like the whole fast creation went fine because I know how that process goes. But when we got to the characters, it's like someone had changed the controls inside of the car that I'd been driving for four years. <laughs> like I went, I went to turn on the headlights and the windshield wiper started flipping back and forth with five other people watching me. I'm like, um, uh, and, and I'm supposed to show them how this car works. Uh, so I'm not, I, in hindsight, I'm not surprised that that happened. I kind of wish that it had happened in a context where I wasn't supposed to be a guest of honor and like demonstrating excellent skill and GMing and giving people a really good experience. Oh, no. But two months later at a catacon, uh, which is a, a smaller convention in Dayton, I brought uh, some of those same pregens with me. And I had two of the best games of Iron Edda that I've ever had, regardless of whether it was accelerated or the original. Um, oh. Something about those initial experiences, like I got what the changes that I had made were supposed to look like at the table. Mm -hmm. And I was able to help the players figure those things out. And they really dialed in and they dialed in faster, I noticed, than people who are playing the original one. Mm -hmm. Um, there were less moving parts to worry about. You had a lot more of the stuff written down right in front of you. So when you wanted to know what does it look like when I summon the bones, it's right there on the sheet. Mm -hmm. Like this is what it does. So we had a couple of really great sessions. Uh, and then I continued fleshing out everything else in the book, revised all the hold fast questions, um, added a few more because the original table had this uh, funky probability curve on the category selection. Mm-hmm. So you would end up getting the categories that were clustered in the middle a whole lot and stuff like blessings of the gods and curse of the gods were on the lower probability ends of things. So I changed all that up. So there's an even chance of getting every question now. Okay. And um, Iron Ed Accelerated, unlike the original, is a self-contained standalone book. Mm -hmm. It has all the rules for playing it in the book. So it shows you how to play Fate Accelerated. It explains what aspects are, how you use approaches, the whole nine yards. Uh, whereas uh, Ironetta, War of Metal and Bone, needed a copy of Fate Core and maybe also a copy of Fate Accelerated right? to really get all of it. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, yeah, that was pretty common to all the sort of first... That was one of the like first book third-party books that kind of came out right after fate core did if i remember correctly uh yeah it was, um well it kick-started about a year after fate core did it didn't get done until 2015 um mm. but the design philosophy behind it was very much a, one of that first wave yeah and and honestly that was on advice from folks at evil hat themselves because they had just come off of writing fate core and they were like oh my god it took us 300 pages to explain this game, yeah. Let let alone setting stuff, yeah. And your and the special things you're doing. So we really just from a work perspective recommend that you don't try to retell Fate Core in the book. And they were right. I mean, that's it's a lot. Yeah. But Dresden, but for, by you know, and counterpoint, Dresden Files Accelerated is about 276 pages, and it has a ton of setting information. 
but also explains all the mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that framework, that setup of, okay, how do we break down these chapters? What information needs to be delivered? It provided a really good model for how to how to do that in, in a way that wasn't cumbersome. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really need to look into Dresden files accelerator. I've heard nothing but good things about it recently. Um, and this is someone who's played a lot of the original Dresden files RPG. Um, but, um, I kind of want to go back to your statement of like, you had this time, you know, you ran this one, your first version of it at a con where you, you were the guest of honor and, it would, and you obviously it didn't go as well because, you don't remember writing parts of it, but then in two months later, uh, everything just everything you know worked perfectly. It sounded or nearly perfectly. Yeah, um, it, it yeah. clicked. Yeah. So what what happened? Was that just you just felt like taking that sort of bad experience and working on it, or did, was it just a, a, you know some unseen muse in your brain clicking on? Uh, what what happened between the, I, yeah those two times? I think it was a combination of things. Um, one is that I knew that the play, that the play test had not gone great, right? Mm-hmm. There's a feeling that you have it at a, at a game table when things are just working yeah. that, that, that feels excellent. And you're like, yes, we're all on the same page and everything's going well. And since I didn't have that feeling, I spent a lot of time thinking about why that was. And along with that, I was writing some of the other destinies and sort of just getting my head wrapped around what the differences were and how to sort of call for uses of conditions as opposed to just blindly using power or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was in a really bad job at the time. And that whole span from like September through early November was kind of a blur to me in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think through all of that, some part of my mind just kept chewing away at it and like really internalizing those differences, Mm. Um, you know, calling for, well, and also as an, as an aside, I had begun running Dresden files accelerated for my home group. Uh, Okay. Yeah. So I was using the same framework and the same mechanical language of saying, okay, you, in, in, in DFA, because of approaches, and, and this stands for fate accelerated too, at least in my experience, it's not like you can call for someone to make a perception check if you want them, if, if there's something they possibly need to notice. It is a lot more awkward to say, okay, roll your guile, because then the response is kind of like, well, why? Because when you have an approach, it describes how you're doing the thing you're doing. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to have a thing that you're doing mm-hmm. and a description of that narrative action to then have the approach, the use of the approach makes sense with skill-based things. You can be like, okay, please roll your perception. And someone's like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm looking for something if I'm doing that, I guess. Right. Yeah. So working through that and realizing the ways in which I needed to disseminate information were a little bit different mm-hmm. and the ways in which I needed to, um, utilize the powers that people had or what they were going to come up with to use those powers needed to change. So all of that sort of melded together to have me feeling more comfortable as a GM. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I got to, to a catacon in November, I could describe exactly what this was supposed to look like at the table using the stuff that I had in front of me as examples of, you know, of, of, of the mechanical side of things. So yeah, it was, 
it, I think it was, it was, like I said, it was necessary for me to get those bad tests out of the way. Sure. Because I had to change gears. Like yeah. the, the setting is the same, but man, are those two games different in how they roll out at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, since I've been more comfortable as a GM, every session of Iron Edit Accelerated that I've run has been as good as the best sessions of the original oh, wow. that I ran. Um, just because there hasn't been as much of a struggle like getting everybody on the same page. Because mm-hmm. um, if you're unfamiliar with Fate, which I'd say a good third of the people that I end up with at tables at conventions have never played Fate before. Yeah. So I'm teaching the game as well as teaching the setting and the specific rules. Again, having everything laid out right in front of you makes it a lot easier. You're not trying to grok a, a setting as well as a system because it's all rolled together on your character sheet. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, that does... Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, Fate is a interesting game to sort of um, learn, but it, it is... I feel, yeah, a lot of people don't always get it right away. Um, mm-hmm. And it takes some time uh, to get used to. So that, that, that's a good way to frame it, I think. Um, so as someone who does have a lot of experience running and thinking about Fate games, um, what other kind of advice would you give to people who are coming into it? Not necessarily Ironetta, but they're just mm-hmm. as, a, as a general uh, system. Um, it's not as dissimilar from other systems as you might think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that when you see the weird dice and you look at aspects and you see like the ladder of skills or the, the grouping of approaches, like that can be, it looks a little bit foreign, right? Um, I think if fate accelerated is an easier entry point, um, because it has more commonalities with more traditional RPGs. Um, the big one is how stress works because in fate accelerated, part of what makes it accelerated is that for every shift you get hit by, right? The number over the target that your opponent rolled, you mark off one stress box for each one mm-hmm. in fate core. If you get hit for three shifts, you mark your third box, yeah, which is a weird thing to wrap your mind around. Yeah. Sometimes like I've had to, that's one of the things I've had to explain over and over again, more times than, uh, than almost anything else. Um, uh, be- yeah. Sorry, yeah. Sorry, but the, the game I wrote, Kerb, or, uh, Base Raiders uses Strange Fate, which is Kerberos Club, which is mm-hmm. the Fate Core thing uh, of like third for your, you know, Markov. Um, if you took three stress, yeah, Markov your third box. But if you don't have any boxes left, if your third box is already filled, you have to mark up at least the four the box. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, it, that is always something that gets people. Um, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, it's it, it's it's challenging yeah. um, because almost everything else, aside from creating an advantage, mm-hmm. is the usual kind of stuff you'll do in an RPG. You're mm-hmm. rolling attack to hurt someone or deal them stress. You're rolling defend to not take stress. You're rolling overcome for anything that would be a skill check in D&D or, or other games. Mm-hmm. Um, and create advantage is really just a mechanical codification of a player going well, shit, what's in the environment that I can do or how can I help someone right around me? And so if you have an easy way to explain that unique bit, everything else sort of clicks into place a little bit more uh, smoothly. So I would say keep in mind that that it's not that different. Um, Probably start with Fate Accelerated 
if you have an, uh, an expression of it that you really like, like if you like the Dresden verse, go ahead and start there because it gives codified things because it uses those uh, uh, conditions and, mm-hmm. and as part of its mantle setup for you know who you are in the world. But remembering to take player input, let players suggest things. If it's something that is kind of over the top, um, suggest that they might want to spend a fate point for that story detail, because that's a thing you can do. Um, and remember that creating advantages is probably one of the most powerful things you can do in the game, because you can load up those advantages with free invocations and absolutely be the baddest of asses <laughs> for that moment. Right. Um, the other thing that I think is useful, especially if you're a new player to fate is do, don't be afraid of taking success at a cost, right? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Unless it's narratively interesting, you never really have to fail at doing much in that game. Like in theory, you could, aside from attacking or defending, you could not roll the dice for almost everything that you do and just say, no, I'll take success at a cost. Right. If, yeah, if, yeah. if you really, if you really wanted to, but people are so afraid sometimes of their characters getting hurt or the narrative not quite going the way that they want to. But in my experience, that's where the best story is, is you succeed. You just get bloodied up while you're doing it. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's a really powerful bit of narrative. Um, mm-hmm. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of that. Like, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think, uh, of course, a lot of that trepidation that players have uh, from succeeding at a cost also comes from uh, certainly the sort of adversarial old school GMing style and and or bad experiences with previous GMs who um, <laughs> don't take the advice section of uh, RPGs section very well. I'm like, oh, at a cost, sure, you're you lose your hand or uh, your favorite magic item breaks or you know something like that. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, they can't. Th- they have no creativity. I mean, I think there is sort of a challenge in running a fake game that you have to be able to think on your feet more quickly than if you're running a boxed, you know, a, a pre-written, you know, dungeon crawl adventure or whatever, where everything is specified and everything is explained. Because you have to be able to come up with interesting penalties with a, you know, f- walking that thin line between being narratively boring or useless or to crippling your character and killing game interest. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. I've never been good at running pre-written adventures mm-hmm. like at all, because, uh, from my part, the difficulty comes from, uh, with a pre-written adventure. I feel like I have to know everything inside and out. Yeah. Right. Like I have to know tip to toe, what can happen if, if we go over here because there are ramifications if mm-hmm. those things don't happen. And I feel so beholden to that content that it's really challenging for me. Um, I'm actually, I'm going to face that challenge head on this fall probably because my group is really interested in dragon heist and subsequently the undermountain. Uh, oh, right. The new books that are, that, yeah, yeah, that are going to come out for D and D. And I really want to do well mm-hmm. with those but I want to do well in my way. So I'm going to take the strengths that I've learned about being an improvisational GM from running so much fate, right? From having lived literally uh, having iron Edda in my bones Mm -hmm. for now four years 
and I'm going to try and internalize the setting to a degree that I'm comfortable enough with it that mm-hmm. if things need you know go a different direction that I can just roll with it and I'm using the adventure as a reference and not as a a, a, a chain around my ankle yeah um, but yeah it's 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 really interesting how those dynamics can vary and um, I have to continually this is something I had to really remember when I was writing like the how to run Ironetta section mm-hmm. of the book is that there are things that I do as a GM that are not like part of fate as a game. They're just things I do at the table and more so with accelerated than with uh, war of metal and bone. I worked really, really hard to try and explain those things in context in the book so that you have a better idea of being able to figure out how this game can look and get it to sort of be the experience that I have at conventions or running a home campaign, mm-hmm. right? Because that's that's the iron editor that I know works. So I had to find a way to try and give other people those tools. Um, <laughs> yeah, you and that's can't. it's it's challenging. Yeah, no, you can't you can't you know you can't photocopy yourself and you know mail mail you with along with every copy of the book to run the games for them. Uh, nope you you have to figure out a way to. Uh, yeah, you have to figure out a way to to make sure that the game works the way you want it to when you're not there, and mm-hmm. that's that's challenging. It is, it is, um, and certainly sometimes you come in, you know, you event, eventually hear surprise of people doing things that you never expected, which is sort of a, uh, I think, an, an, a benefit. You know, like, oh wow, you did something with a game I never thought possible. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, that there, there was actually, um, gosh, this was probably twenty fifteen maybe 2016 mm-hmm. i found out that another actual play podcast whose name unfortunately escapes me right now had gotten war of metal on bone and ran a quick like six or eight session series of it mm-hmm. and i listened to part of it and they didn't do things the way that i did them at all mm-hmm. and and like to the point where i was like oh man that's what so that's what they took from what i wrote yeah, that's that's interesting, mm-hmm. and it it made me much more aware this time around of being explicit with some things that I felt needed to be explicit. Yeah, and and leaving openness for people to interpret other things however they want to. Yeah, it's interesting how the actual play podcasts have actually become like game design has been influenced by that, which influences actual plays and sort of feedback. Because I remember mm-hmm. we did an episode of a public of a of a fan written uh, Eclipse Days adventure called Think Before Asking, which was written by Andrew Sandberg, who is this like AI researcher who's you know very 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 smart man, and he writes Eclipse Days adventures for fun. Um, and so he posted in the comments of our episode, "Oh wow." I never expected the adventure to be run this way. I'll have to think about this. This was great. Thanks. And so, like, um, yeah. So, like, running the, the, the there is a, it's an interesting um, uh, feedback loop. Um, so I didn't even consider that. But well, right yeah, now. it's it's yeah. kind of like having a a public playtest phase for your game after it's already been released. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I'm I'm. I believe that Ironetta Accelerated will have a period of, of playtesting because there's going the backers will get a preview copy and whatnot, and people will be able to uh, to take it for a spin. Um, because 
that's something I didn't really get a chance to do with the original. Mm-hmm. Um, I had run it a lot and some of my friends had run it. So I, I was reasonably confident that it was what I wanted it to be. But obviously, it, I mean, it's a little disingenuous to say that, like, I should have known then that it was going to need a revised edition because I didn't quite. Obviously, I thought it was good when it when it first came out. But like yeah. in total hindsight, like there are things that I fixed or adapted in this new version. But even then, I know there are things that I haven't really seen that I other people's eyes will catch. Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah. know, just a small thing. Like uh, I had some friends run run it at uh, uh, a convention back in May, just a one shot, and someone played the crafter. And like I had to tone down one of the crafter's powers because it was just too much. Um, and balance is not really a concern in this game necessarily because different beings have different power levels in the world and that's fine. But what the crafter could do and how often they could do it was a lot to contend with. So I, you know, I, I think I didn't actually tone the power down, but I made it able to happen far less frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, because of that. And I'm sure there are other things that could benefit from those looks as well. So I'm, I'm excited for other people to see it and to, to have a chance to really, uh, poke at it. Yeah. Um, so I'm definitely going to be interested in looking at it just, uh, at some point I need to update base (laughs) Raiders too. So, um, but speaking of people looking at it though, um, you mentioned that you're working now with a company to help bring it this alive because, uh, uh, Kickstarter, you've you've done enough Kickstarters, so you've done your time in the Kickstarter mines, and now you went out. Is that it? Or <laughs> I'm not a I'm not a good publisher. Okay. Um, I I like running Kickstarters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like making things because of Kickstarters. Uh, I even enjoy coordinating development teams, and you know, like taking the work to an editor and doing my you know getting the red lines back and making changes and making you know giving art notes to the graphic to the artist and graphic designer that stuff is is fine and fun i enjoy that what i am bad at is the actual business side of it the logistics the printing the shipping all of that and given that rpgs are such a i've actually in my in my brain into a few people I've seen at cons, I've been describing them as one of the most anti-capitalist ventures I can think of (laughs) because they, they don't possess enough inherent buy-in or reproducibility to make a ton of money. Mm -hmm. They, They just don't, you have to convince five or six people, probably only one of whom really needs to buy a copy of the book to take three to four hours out of their night every other week and, and, and play your thing as opposed to playing one of the other amazing thing that's things that's out there. Mm-hmm. And to do that, they're going to spend, you know, 20 to a hundred dollars on one book, depending on which book it is and, and who's making it. Um, but like I said, only one person has to buy that, you know, and you can then use that for years. Yeah. You don't really have to buy anything else. Um, so there's not an easy way or an easy road to doing this full time. So all of that business stuff is in addition to the rest of life and a full-time job and, you know, now doing a podcast as well and, and all of this other stuff. So when I saw the opportunity to pitch the idea to a company who as a group has a project manager, a graphic designer, someone who does their marketing, yeah. um, a, a developer and an editor, I was like, well, 
that's a whole lot of work I don't have to do. And, and even a couple of days ago on Twitter, I, I posted that, you know, Ironet Accelerated is going to be launching sometime, you know, near the end of July. And I'm working on a different game. Like, I can move on now and, and work on other projects that, that I have, you know, in the fire. And I think that is a hugely valuable thing to be able to do as a creator. Mm-hmm. Um, it is akin to the way that fiction publishing works. Mm-hmm. Like when this Kickstarter is done, I'm going to get money for the words that I wrote. If it does well enough, I'm going to get an advance for the next Ironetta book. Like that's amazing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. It's living that's the dream. that. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I'm obviously going to be talking about it and promoting it the same way that even a traditionally published fiction author would have to talk about and promote their, their own work. But while I'm doing that promotion and that talking, which is one sort of one job, my writing time can be devoted to other things. I'm not taking it up trying to do the business logistics and cramming all of that together into one big ball of stress and worry. Um, So I'm really, really happy that there are some smaller publishers out there who are willing to take chances and do this for game developers. Um, I think that people who can do this writing and design thing as a one-stop shop are kind of amazing. They're also few and far between like uh, John Harper, for example, with blades in the dark. Mm -hmm. Um, He wrote and did all the layout and did a lot of the art. Like that's pretty amazing. Um, But even then he's now working with evil hat to make sure that it actually gets, it reaches all the audiences that it should because evil hat can do that better than he can. Yeah. Um, so at this point in time, I feel that encoded designs can help me do that better than I can. And for, um, I've got another game signed with, uh, another publisher. Um, Galileo games is going to be helping me make a, uh, a card based fate game. That's sort of my love letter to the borderlands franchise, um, called Valkyries. Mm-hmm. And I'm writing and developing it, but they're going to be doing the editing and the layout and the art. And I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. It's just, it's having come from doing all of that work myself from the production side of things, even just managing those projects, it's incredibly freeing to, to be able to do that. And I'm ridiculously lucky that there are publishers who want to do that with me. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's another set of revenue streams that will hopefully maybe someday down the road mean that writing games is what I get to do, you know, to, to live my life. Yeah. Uh, we'll see, obviously that, that is, that is the dream. Um, but it takes a lot of different work to, to go there. And you know that yeah. better than probably anybody else, because you've been doing RPPR for over a decade now, right? Yeah. Started September, 2007. So yeah. yeah. And I mean, your, your Patreon is doing really well for you, but like when we were setting up this call, you mentioned freelance work, like yeah. it takes, multiple avenues of income Mm -hmm. because RPGs are such a niche thing. Yeah. You know, um, if we had both started true crime podcast five years ago, (laughs) we we could be rolling in it right now. Um, we could talk about murders and nine one one calls. Right. But you know, we love this thing that is improvisational, collaborative storytelling, using fictional and narrative frameworks, 
involving dice and other card and other mechanics and which leave very few um, tangible artifacts of their happening, right? Podcasts have changed that. um, Streaming has changed that to a degree, but like when you're done with a session, that's just, that's it. You're just done with the session and it lives on in your mind, but nowhere else really. Yeah. And so trying to propagate it and trying to spread it and get more people into the hobby and more people buying books and engaged with supplements and all that is a real challenge. And, and podcasts and streaming have done a lot to help that. And I think they're going to continue to, um, but even still, you know, I've been doing the other cast for a year and a half now and I get 76 bucks a month on my Patreon Mm -hmm. for, you know, and you break it down based on the amount of work that goes into the episodes that go out. Hmm. It's less than a dollar an hour, you know, like yeah. all told. And that's fine. It, it, it is what it is. I'm, I, I mean, that, that 76 bucks a month pays my internet bill. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, but it's, uh, it's a challenging field to want to make a career in. Yeah. But it's also the only thing that I have found that I'm actually really good at. I can fake good at a few other things, like enough to, to you know get a job doing them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like writing and running role playing games is something I'm actually pretty good at. Yeah. Um, and it has taken me long enough to find this thing that I'm good at uh, that I don't want to let go of the possibility that I can be good at it in a way that this capitalist society recognizes in a manner that will let me live my life with some measure of, of stability. <laughs> so, all right. Sorry. That was a long tangent there at the end. Uh, no, that's <laughs> fine. I mean, um, this is, uh, certainly a game about Epic saga should end with sort of a, uh, this is, and this is how I want to live my life. You know, you just have to be on top <laughs> of a mountain, uh, shouting this. Uh, I will stand before the darkness and raise my fist at it. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, iron Etta accelerated is on Kickstarter. Uh, hopefully by the time you listen to this, it should be up. I'll have links in the show notes. I'll have links up to Tracy's podcast, uh, as well. Um, so thank you, Tracy, for being on RBBR and, uh, good luck fighting the dwarves, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much for having me, Ross. I really appreciate it. Yep. All right. Talk to you guys later. Bye.